You are listening to the Kensington Church Podcast, recorded live in Michigan. To learn more about Kensington, visit kensingtonchurch.org. Well, hey, again, uh, so excited to be here. And I don't know, the one thing that I've, I've had to do underneath Justin Warren's leadership is I have to be at man camp. And if you're a man in the house, honestly, there is no other place in society where men get to process their life with other men, especially in this kind of world and culture where it's not normal for men to kind of express their feelings or to, to, to dive into some of the things in their life. Men, if you feel like you're in transitional waters or you have some major pain going on in your life or you got none of the above and you just want to have a good time because, you know, all that other deeper stuff, isn't maybe your thing. Main camp's perfect because it's a lot of clownery. Uh, it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of jokes and just a lot of activities as well. So please join us if you're a guy. October 6th through 8th, uh, we, I will be there as well. Now I'm excited um, because we are in kind of this standalone message today. And it's about one particular message where God says he's going to be doing a new thing. And because it's a standalone, I kind of get to choose my own title. That's right, Justin. I know you're watching. And the title I want to choose uh, for today's message is going to be called this, Pining for a Prime. Pining for a Prime. Now, what does that mean? A prime is a season of life that is so good, so fulfilling, so joy-filled that everything else in the present feels empty. A prime is a season of life we wish we could recreate. We could retrieve it and relive it. A prime is something that we are longing and craving and hungering and pining after because the experience of the friendship, the experience of the purpose was so good, rewarding, that everything else in comparison just seems to be not as good. Has anyone else experienced maybe a prime of life? You know, I wasn't going to do this, but I want to break the fourth wall. When I say prime, I I want someone to help me out. What is a prime of uh, of someone's life or of your life that you wish you could go back to? Like maybe it was having little kids. Does someone want to just raise their hand and just share it, break the fourth wall, be comfortable? Maybe somebody? College, prime time, especially for those of us who went to Michigan State. Go green. <laughs> who else? Dating your husband. Dating your husband. That's what I'm talking about. Yes. The sweet limerence phase of all the, the chemicals flooding. Just nothing like it. We love it. We'll, get, we'll do one more. All right, one more prime. What's one, one final prime? Having children, having littles. I feel like for me, my wife and I, uh, I'm married to my wife, Natalie, of seven years. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, but we have two little ones. We have a three-year-old. His name is Bronson. We have a six-month-old. Her name is Ivory. And she smiles and kicks whenever she sees me. And uh, we are living in a prime, and we're also extremely exhausted. And it's that one quote, I think it's probably from the office where you don't know you're living in the good old days until you are no longer in the good old days or whatever. Um, but all of it to say, I think all of us have different primes in our life, whether it was a pre-pandemic prime for you, where you felt like you had all this adventure and exploration, and then you were kind of trapped, or you had children, or you found your partner, and so all that opportunity is gone. Or maybe for you, it was when Michigan actually won national titles. (laughs) Sorry. You know, pre-1950. Anyways, I'm just coping because I know they're going to be Michigan State. Um, All of it to say, uh, I think the weird thing about the past, right, and this is so weird, A weird thing about the past is that you can't recreate it. I mean, even TV shows, right? TV shows that are tried to be rebooted aren't nearly as good. I mean, Full House is one thing. Fuller House, not the same thing. Star Wars, amazing when you first saw it. But then now, no shots at Kyle Kaufman. But Star Wars is maybe not as good. Um, It's it's almost impossible to 
retrieve the nostalgia, to retrieve the first impression, to relive an experience that has gone from us. And honestly, it feels like the present and the future doesn't afford the same opportunities as that prime did. And something happens in us if we begin to place a greater importance in the past than when we do in the present or in the future. Something happens in us. Primarily, I believe that when we are comparing our current lives to a prime, we become passive. We become passive. We begin to withdraw from friendships because everyone has children and it's just not as exciting and everyone's too busy. We stop being invitational because no one wants to hang out or the friend group wasn't as good or, you know, we all used to work at that job but some of us don't work at that job anymore. Or maybe for you, it's that small group experience and faith in a church setting where it's just like, I've had great community. I've had this rich season of faith. And maybe if we're honest, we feel like we've graduated from the feeling of having to do an awkward circle in someone's living room and have a new beginning. And if we're, and we also maybe just feel like our faith is primarily fine. Maybe it's in your career where you feel like, you know, you've given up and become passive and pursuing excellence. Because you said, you know what, I used to be really good, but, and I was really sharp in my career, or that one job I had was amazing. But if I'm honest with where I am now, I just feel like I don't see the payoff for all that labor. So we become passive when we compare the present to a prime. And when nothing beats the past, the present becomes depressing. When nothing beats or surpasses the past, the present becomes depressing. And we forfeit the future. See, in the text that we're going into today, this mirrors the, God's chosen people, Israel's history. And this is the maybe place that m- many Christians go to in scripture to talk about how God is something new and exciting. And maybe if you read it at face value, it's like, that's awesome, cool. We love to see an exciting verse. But I want to dive deeper into it because there's so much rich context. And here's the verse, ready? It says this in Isaiah chapter 43. It says, forget the former things and do not dwell on the past. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I am making a way in the wilderness and the streams in the wasteland. See, to understand, I think this verse's true gravity, we need to understand that at one point in Israel's history, they had a prime. Their borders were expanding. They were accumulating wealth. They really had no threats to their kingdom in, the, in a period known as the United Kingdom, where it's under King Saul, King David, and King Solomon. I mean, everything seemed to be very prosperous. And however, before this, um, maybe you, you look at the Old Testament and you begin to may, maybe not understand it. Does anyone ever have a hard time reading the Old Testament in here? Or, or, or if you've ever seen it or looked at it from afar, it can feel outdated, archaic, barbaric, antiquated. It doesn't seem to make sense. So I want to actually rewind before we get to Israel's prime to unpack exactly how God decided to set up his people. Because God chose a people to represent and redeem the world unto himself, to represent him in the earth, that as people saw this people group, they would become, uh, know the living God. And then they would be redeemed to the living God. And this is the people, Israel. And back in this time, the, the world, the idea of one God or one creator of the universe was a brand new idea. 
I mean, in all the surrounding nations, there were many gods. And when you had many gods, the end goal was that you would survive. You would satisfy the gods. You would make them happy. You maybe at worst would offer your children or offer sacrifices in a temple of animals so that you could have rain, so that your people could survive and not be obliterated by foreign oppressors, not be militarily devastated. And this is the end goal. So all these countries in the ancient world have their gods that represent them kind of like a captain. And so God, Yahweh of Israel, he introduces himself to Israel and says, hey, I I know you don't understand maybe everything that maybe we all know in the 21st century, but God decides to meet them in a language that Israel would understand. He meets them in the same rules of the kingdom so that he could establish a kingdom that rules. He says, yeah, you can build temples, but you're not building a temple to sacrifice animals because I'm hungry and you need to feed me. You you know, you're offering animals to atone for sin so that we can have relationship, right? This God was different. Everything seemed far superior as it came to human relations than than the gods of the surrounding nations. And, you know, so if you are kind of in that feeling of like, it does still feel outdated and antiquated, here's the answer I would give you. It's kind of like trying to answer this question, where do babies come from? You're going to give a different answer to a five-year-old than you'd give an answer to the breakaway students in Jackson's room than you'd give to a medical student who's uh, uh, learning to be a labor and delivery nurse. And no one's lying. You just give an answer according to the knowledge, the context, or the maturity of your audience. And so God meets Israel in some of these ways that they would have understood and creates a far superior system. And so in this, Israel... Uh, they're given written laws. And it's a covenant that God establishes to say, hey, if you obey these laws, I will protect you. I will be on guard for you. But if you don't obey these laws, then, you know, you know all those surrounding nations, gods that you love so much, if you love them so much, you love their traditions so much, you love their values so much, you love their customs so much, they might just cross your borders if you love them so much so you can get a nice up close look at them. And even if maybe you don't feel that's in God's character, at least what we can say is Israel felt and believed this about how they experienced God. And so in this context, Israel begins to thrive. They begin to accumulate wealth. They have this period of peace until their country divides. Yeah, it splits right in half, north and south. It calls to memory our own nation's history. And in this division, they slowly begin to rebel. They slowly begin to disobey this covenant. They slowly fall away from the God that they know. And onto the scene come prophets. And begin to warn Israel to tell them, hey, we're not obeying this covenantal promise. And so here walks a man that we kind of looked at. His name is Isaiah. Now, Isaiah was so interesting. Isaiah is the most quoted, besides the Psalms, is the most quoted book in the New Testament. It's the most quoted book. So some people would call it the fifth gospel right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Isaiah. The New Testament writers looked at this prophetic book and saw who Jesus was through it. And Isaiah, he lived in roughly 700 years before Jesus walked the earth. And biblical scholars, some, would call him a crisis manager. A crisis manager, meaning he could kind of read the times and see where the political winds were blowing. He could see the impending doom upon Israel. And he would predict the future kind of maybe similarly to the way the economists try and predict the future if, you know, interest rates aren't adjusted, 
right? So Isaiah, Isaiah, Isaiah could see that there was impending doom and then be the one to assign and see why or what God was thinking or saying during this time, right? And so in the book of Isaiah, there are actually two crises. Now, the reason why this is so important, <laughs> I know I'm becoming a little bit of a nerd here, but the reason why this is so important is because in most prophetic books in the Old Testament, they only address one crisis. There's two different wars, the Assyrian invasion and then the Babylonian invasion. One to the north, the Assyrians, one to the south, the Babylonians. And usually there were clusters of prophets, but Isaiah seems to cover both that are two to 300 years apart. Right? A modern day example might be Ukraine, that today it's being invaded by Russia, but back in, the, in, in World War II is being invaded by Nazi Germany. This is what was experienced by Israelites. And Isaiah seems to address both of them. So whether he's doing it far in advance of the future, 200 years apart, he's able to you know, see both crises kind of in a flash forward and a flashback kind of way. Or some scholars, depending on how you want to look at it, would say that maybe there's another author who wrote underneath Isaiah a couple hundred years later and would begin to describe these events as they had already taken place in the past. Either one is okay for you to believe in, but the point remains the same is that when we show up to this verse about God doing a new thing, by chapter 40, the whole tone changes. All the crises are over. Babylon's invaded Jerusalem. It's destroyed the temple with the place where Israelites worshiped and they've abducted them, taken them out of their zip code into a land that's unknown. And it's in this captivity that they are freed by a king named Cyrus and they are looking at their future dis destroyed but hopeful. And so this is what God begins to say to the Israelites as they're learning about their freedom. It says this, that this is what the Lord says, your redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. For your sake, I will send to Babylon, right, your captors, and bring down as fugitives all of those Babylonians in the ships which they took pride. God is sending the Babylonians packing as prisoners in the very ships that they carried other prisoners away. And God then pivots to offer this message of hope. And he says, forget the former things. Don't dwell on the past. Forget the former things, don't dwell on the past. Now, if you're Israel, that might be really hard because you've experienced some real traumas. Your people have been abducted. There's been war, that's traumatic. And now you've no homeland to go to or, or many of the people who are born in captivity don't even have a home that they even remember. I don't know about you, but when it comes to primes that end with pain, it almost feels impossible to forget the past, am I right? I think if I'm honest and if I have a moment of vulnerability, there's many things in my life that I feel like I'm just hung up on, a, a prime or the, the old or what used to be. You know, for me, I, again, I work with young, adult, uh, young adults and, you know, pre-pandemic, we had a couple, young, uh, a couple hundred young adults who were a part of our movement. We had like 25 leaders. And once the pandemic hit, I went down to zero leaders and roughly like 35 people. And it was at this point where I realized that we were never, at least in my mind, going to recover from this. We're never coming back from this. And it felt like every coffee that I'd ever gotten with a young adult, every, you know, strategy meeting, every way that I tried to, you know, reach young adults to have them hear the gospel, felt like it didn't matter. It felt like it was off or not. And I remember walking around kind of like a zombie around this place because I was like, what am I supposed to do? 
Did, did any of it matter? Did any of it seem worthwhile? Maybe you have a family member kind of in the same way where you've spent so much time. They've struggled and struggled financially. They struggled and struggled in their marriage. They've struggled and struggled to overcome addiction. And you feel like you've been there and been there. And then it sometimes feels like maybe they're in a worse spot, right? Like for all of us, there can feel like this pain that ends up prime. And no, like, yeah, cool, God, just forget about it. Awesome, right? And don't worry, just, just, just look at the new things, right? Or even for me, it's like I'm, I'm a new parent, but if I'm completely honest, I feel like I've had, for as much as I've been in the richest season of my life the last three years, I've also been in, in some of the most depressed. I feel like my freedom has been gone, you know? Um, you know, I'm the worst advertisement for, you know, when single people talk to me about what parenting is like. For all that I absolutely love and adore my children would never change anything, there's another part of me that realizes that my life isn't my own. And that's been a really big struggle for me. And if I'm honest, it's hard for me to talk about with friends because I feel like no one else has this problem. <laughs> you know, I feel like the moms get it because they're like, yes, we do. <laughs> but it's a lot of the dads who just seem to be chill or fine. And I just feel maybe like I'm alone as a guy who's struggling in this. And also just even with my own faith. Back when I worked in Birmingham in 2013, working as an elementary coordinator with Mora, so much fun. Man, I couldn't tell anyone, but I was experiencing deep doubt and feelings of agnosticism over my faith. I just got done with college. I'd spent eight years just following the straight and narrow, worshiping Jesus, doing all the things he asks of us. And then it's like I lost my entire faith, or at least it felt like it. And I couldn't tell anyone because I feel like I would lose my job. I felt like I would lose my belonging. I feel like my family would judge me, and I feel like no one would understand. I think if we're honest, there's many of us in here who are too afraid to be honest about maybe some of the questions of doubt that are in their own heart because of what it might imply, what it might mean, the consequences that it's going to have for you. And I think it's in this where it's like, how do you just move past this? How do you just forget that this is a part of your life? But when God says, I'm doing a new thing, I think there's an assumption that at least I made. The assumption was that it has to be the same thing because I was looking for the old. I was like, no, I want my faith to look exactly how it did in college when I thought about it this way or worshiped in this way. No, I want my, you know, my dating life with my wife to be the exact same way. But I'm realizing that new is new. It can't be old. And if, in many ways, we want to go back to, because something was bigger. There's more people or more friends or more money, right? Whatever it was. But I, I think what I'm learning, at least in the, the definition of new, that new doesn't mean bigger. New can just mean better, or it can just mean different, right? And so it says, I want, to read, I want to put this verse back up. It says, forget the former things. Don't dwell on the past. See, I'm doing a new thing. It springs up. This is the key for me. This is what I learned. Don't you perceive it? Because I don't think I understood that God was trying to evolve me in all these areas of my life. And that the ways of thinking or believing weren't serving me in the exact same ways I used to. And when we look at this passage in Israel, it kind of matches up with their experience. God doesn't take them back to their prime. He doesn't give them wealth and a kingdom and a king. He doesn't give them everything they had before. In fact, the next 500 years are pretty laborious. And guess what? They have, a, by the time Jesus shows up, a new invader, the Roman Empire. And they have to go back and they have to weep at the wall and rebuild their temple but what we realize is that there was something else that was different and even better in this scenario. And Isaiah shares it in chapter 53. It says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. 
The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we were healed. God did a new thing. No longer did the world have to be won over to God of the universe by looking at a people group. But by one man's sacrifice, the world would have access simply through faith. No amount of works or performance would save or be welcomed into the family of God. No, it was simply through faith in Jesus. And this new thing is the thing that God wanted to do to show his great love. So at least, I don't know about your story, but at least in mine, my pursuit of ministry has completely changed. Before it was about bigger and getting it back to the prime that it was, right? But you know what also happened during that time? It was a lot of just trying to muster up people to be excited, maybe even generating fake excitement with the crowd and with all these people and stressing myself out. And what I've realized, maybe the new thing that God has done in me as I've sacrificed performance for authenticity. And the new thing that God, at least in my life, I've learned is that it's better to be authentic. No longer am I straining myself over being a perfect communicator and just being the, the, you know, all things to all people. No, for me, it's actually about living in the authentic you know, growth that God has placed me in. And that's, that's something I'm learning and still learning. The other one, my faith that I thought was lost, right? What I was clinging to was certainty and having answers and intellectual things. And what I actually got in return, the new thing God was doing was mystery, unknown, and just a divine dance of relationship. That for years I searched to have just total certainty and clarity. And there's nothing wrong with pursuing it, trust me. Having some answers absolutely helps. Having some ways to think about things absolutely helps. But what I got instead, the new thing, was a a delight and mystery. And when it comes to family and marriage, I don't know what the ending of that chapter is, but I can tell you one thing, it's absolutely healing. The past I wanted was freedom to do whatever I wanted, but now what I'm learning is healing, that I've been hurting. I've been aching. And there's a new thing God wants to do in me that wasn't there before. And so I want to offer four ways I believe that we can recreate a new thing, a new prime that maybe God wants to do as all of us are comparing our present to the past. The first one, honestly, is, is maybe a little hard. It's processing. Processing. Yeah, processing. When the Israelites were freed from, you know, Babylon, they had to go and process the trauma that they had gone through. In fact, the two uh, people who are assigned to rebuild the wall, wall were Ezra and Nehemiah. It says this about Nehemiah, that when he heard that the exiles were back and in distress, and, he, and they, he heard about the burned city and the broken walls down, he wept and it broke his heart. And he asked the king to go back and he contemplated and he left his job with Ezra. Ezra when the, the construction of this new temple, when they went back and rebuilt it, the old priests who had seen the former temple wept and cried while others cheered. And it makes a note that it says, you couldn't distinguish the weeping from the cheering. There was so much noise going on. See, I think the first thing that all of us need to do is to process. You know, for me, I actually did a little therapy adventure. I think it's becoming a little more normalized and common. But for me, you know, uh, I was sparked because I I knew I was having children three years ago. And uh, I had this realization, maybe you've had it too, where I realized if I can't control my reactions around my adult wife who uses logic and reason, I will never control my reactions around an illogical kid who has no brain developed. And that just led me to want to go back to therapy. And it was there that I felt like I was looking for these answers. What happened, right? 
Tell me what to do. Why am I like this? Why am I experiencing the world like this? And I thought I needed answers. But what I actually needed was simply to process. I needed to experience what I was feeling. I needed to experience the emotions that I just had buried deep that I didn't want to face. But I realized that when the pain of change becomes greater than the pain of staying the same, you have no choice. And my therapist, Kevin, kept asking, why? Why? Where did it come from? And all I got from it was clarity. And the processing stage, if you're looking for a new prime, it's about getting the clarity. Ask the question, why? Because you will show up with fuller clarity, fuller insight, and fuller wisdom to go forward and build your new life. The second thing is people. I apologize for the alliteration I'm about to go through. I'm disgusted with myself. But people, people, did you realize that in every prime, it's where you had the most people? Think about that. In the greatest seasons of your life, it's because you had the most relationships and had the closest relationships. Primes are where people are. I actually believe that God uses friendship energy to change the world. Look at the 12 disciples. It's friendship energy. He says, I've not called you servants. I've called you friends for you know my business. See, we need people in our life because we need to process. I love what John Acuff says. He's a speaker, uh, a Christian thought leader. And he says, the days of accidental community are over. No longer is it just on accident that we run into people and become friends. We're all at home. And he elaborates, he says, we've sacrificed community on the altar of convenience. It's convenient to just watch on stream, uh, though we love having you on stream. We'd rather have you than not have you. But, but it's convenient to not go to a small group. It's convenient not to serve. It's convenient to do just Zoom from home instead of showing up to the office, right? And we've sacrificed rich relationships on the altar of it just being easier for us. But in the process, we've lost richness. We've lost people. How many of us just feel like if we had someone who knew about what was going on, maybe we wouldn't have some of the mental health struggles that we do. It's people that are primed. So I want to encourage us here, this is my challenge for the room, to join a small group. I know, but to join a small group. This is what I tell my young adults. Join it for one year. Be like an athlete. Sign a one-year deal. Have a signing day. Take a picture. Sign a contract, you know, with your, you and your partner or your spouse. Like, sign a deal. Here's why. Because you might be so surprised at the life change at the end of one year if you simply decide to do one thing and that's show up. And if you're like me, it's easy to feel like you've graduated from it or you've done that before, or you've tried it. But it's in proximity over time and having shared experiences with people and about sharing our secrets and them sharing their secrets that allows us to have a new prime that maybe we wouldn't have before. The third thing, the third thing is purpose. A deep sense of fulfillment, Nehemiah, right? What, what led him to know what his calling was? It said his heart broke. He wept, he saw. So my question is, what breaks your heart? You know, when a pain ends a prime, maybe there's a sign, there's a clue that maybe your purpose is found in the very thing that's destroyed you. Maybe that's actually the one thing that allows you to see others in ways that they've never been seen. I'll be honest with you. There are so many, at least for me in the last 10 years, there's so many events that made me feel like I'll never be the same person. I'll only be a shell of the person I used to be. What I've learned is that becomes your superpower. It becomes the very thing that allows you to see, to withhold judgment, to hold space, and to give the gift that you wish you 
would have gotten. What has broken your heart? Who do you wish was there? What did they say? In that imaginary world, what was it like to be you and what would you have needed? Maybe for you, that's the purpose God is doing. Maybe that's the new thing. And then finally, number four is pursuit. See, this one's tough for me because I love to think and process, but at the end of the day, when it comes to a prime, we need to pursue the purpose. We need to take action. I actually love brain science. It's kind of one of my favorite little things right now. And did you know that pain and pleasure are co-located in the brain? Meaning that whenever we do something we don't wanna do, our brain will reward us with a little bit of a dopamine rush, a little bit of pleasure. But if we indulge in too much pleasure, our brain will kind of give us a little bit of pain to say, hey, you need to kind of move on with your life and this is maybe affecting you because you're overindulging, whether it be food, sugar, caffeine, you know, substances, whatever. And I believe that maybe there's a little bit of pay now to play later (laughs) instead of playing now and paying later. See, when we pursue and we actually take action, it takes us outside of our thoughts, outside of our loneliness, And simply by being active, we become invigorated. We feel like the world is new and and we can begin to see the new thing that God is doing in us. And so the chances are, if you're looking to experience a prime, I would argue that it's because we, we need to have closer relationships with people. We need to have a fulfilling purpose and know what we are called to do and then finally to pursue it and actually take action. That is how we build a prime. So here's my question, what are you pining for? What have you been pining, longing, and craving for? What have you been trying to retrieve and recreate that you just can't seem to retrieve and recreate? And what breaks your heart? What's broken your heart? What do you wish someone else would have given to you that maybe you can give to others? Who do you need to be in friendship and relationship with because you've been so alone? What is the first action step, the first foot in front of the other that you can take? And maybe you'll find that God is doing a new thing and it may not be bigger and it's definitely not the old thing, but it's new. But I think if we wanna start this, I think it's important to do number one, which is to process. I think we need to make room for God. I think we need maybe a moment to recognize that we haven't been okay. Maybe we haven't admitted that. Maybe for us, we've worshiped or longed after this past. And maybe for others of us, we just need to process because we're finally excited again. We didn't realize that God could actually be doing a new thing, that the wheels are spinning. And it's like today, maybe God's speaking to you. It's like rewiring your brain to say, oh my gosh, like, yes, this is the confirmation that I needed. And maybe you're jumping out of your chest as I'm saying that because you know that's you. And so I wanna take this moment to make space, to make room for God, to do what only he can do in your heart, to process with him. Heavenly Father, we're just so thankful for who you are and the goodness that you have, that even if we're trying to, to, to cling to the past, God, you're doing a new thing, a better thing. We're gonna relinquish performance for authenticity. We're gonna give up the past so we can see a bright future. We're gonna see that it's in your heart and in your intention, that it's not to cause the devastation, but rather it's your hand at work to create something new and beautiful. God, I ask that from this place, it would 
maybe prompt our heart to know that we do need people, that we've been relying on accidental community. We've maybe been passive, withdrawn, avoidant, but God, I pray that this would be the spark of intentionality for all of us in here, knowing that you're doing a new thing. We thank you in your name. Amen. You've been listening to the Kensington Church Podcast. If you've enjoyed this recording, check back weekly for new content. You can find Kensington on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and of course, at kensingtonchurch.org.